Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, we're talking about practical residential and commercial battery storage systems on today's show. And I kind of think back, heck, almost 20 years ago, we used to install a lot of lead-acid batteries. But the real innovation, the things that change things, is the availability of lithium-ion battery storage systems. And they've been available for residential and commercial installations for only a couple of years. In addition to lithium-ion, there's new technologies, such as flow batteries, that are also on the market. Now, with these solar coupled with battery storage systems, customers can time shift their energy purchases from the utility by using backup power instead of grid or solar power. So, heck, when electric rates are 45 cents in the evening, you can be running off of a battery, which you charge from basically almost free solar during the day. And the other benefit is that people can have reliable backup power for when the grid goes down. Really important now that so many things are electric and really important for companies because they, they want to make sure that their computers and their computers communications are still working. Now, the other good thing about batteries is utilities can also benefit because these batteries can provide grid support services like voltage support, frequency regulation, and power factor correction. But utility regulations have been delaying widespread use of these systems. Utilities are worried that customers are going to charge their batteries from the grid using the grid power and then use that power at night. They don't want you to do that. And so they're also placing unreasonable restrictions on systems that charge batteries from solar just because they're worried about you charging from the grid. It's kind of crazy. They come up with all kinds of absurd counterintuitive economic arguments. It's kind of like a water company saying that they're going to charge us for collecting our own rainwater. But that's the problem with the monopoly utilities, because they're focused more on their profits and their bottom line and their bonuses than providing inexpensive and clean power to customers. All right, I digress. The good news is that there's progress in California and other states about making it easier to connect batteries to the grid. And to help us understand these complicated requirements, my guest this week is Josh Weiner, president of SEPI. Solar. Now, Seppi Solar provides engineering services to solar and battery storage contractors. He's really at the leading edge of battery storage. And Josh and I go way back to 2006 when he used to work with me at Akina Solar as manager of design engineering. So welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me back, Barry. All right, good, good. All right, so tell us a little bit about the services that Seppi Solar provides. Okay. Seppi Solar, we're a nationwide design and engineering firm that specializes in solar systems as well as energy storage, as well as microgrids. So with or without a generator, with or without a grid connection, with wind turbines, with any kind of these sources, we are the design engineering experts that like to stay up to date on the technology, on the products, on the policies, and lovely rules, requirements, and restrictions that govern these kinds of systems. Well, you must have your hands full. Just covering PG&E territory is enough, and you're covering so much other areas. You've got a zillion regulations to keep track of. So tell us a little bit about your customers and the kinds of either residential or commercial battery storage systems that they're using. Customers, being an independent engineering firm, customers come to us from all walks of life, uh, developers, EPCs, you know, electricians, roofers, contractors, but then also building owners, landowners, as well as actually even utilities, believe it or not, are approaching us, uh, seeing that we're licensed and independent and working on these kinds of issues. And they just run into, they're just running into problems and they're looking for somebody to give them advice or consult with them technically, policy-wise how to get from point A to point B. So even though you know we are a design engineering company, I actually think of myself more like a technical consultant than anything else. I'm just, I just want to help, and my company wants to help get anybody from point A to point B 
however that is most efficient, cost-effective, and best for all involved. Yeah, heck, sometimes I think that the role is more like a psychiatrist or a doctor <laughs> because somebody wants to do something and you just can't can't get there from here. You can't do it. Well, what are some of the popular systems that they're getting installed? On the residential side, we see certainly a lot of LG and SolarEdge. We also see a lot of Tesla. I would say those are the more popular energy storage systems on the residential side. CNI. I probably have a somewhat skewed perspective than perhaps most companies, since lithium is still 90% of the market. 100% of my CNI projects are using vanadium flow batteries. Okay. And whose vanadium flow batteries are out there? There are a few. I think Vionics, UET, but the one I prefer to use, pretty much my de facto choice, is Avalon Battery. Yeah, they're great. They've been a guest on the show, and you know they're also kind of doing a lot of work with Next Tracker here in Fremont. And they bring a lot of great data with them, you know, as, as the saying goes, you know, in God we trust, all others bring data, and Avalon brought it. Ah, that's really great. All right, so one of the issues that kind of comes up with contractors and homeowners who are looking at battery storage is they kind of hear about this difference between an AC-coupled versus a DC-coupled system. Explain mm. that. Okay. Everything is AC-coupled. When you plug your laptop and your cell phone and your TV into the wall, you are AC-coupling what is really a DC device onto an AC electric grid. So we call that AC-coupling. We don't use inverters, of course, with those types of devices. We use the opposite, right? We're converting AC to DC, what's called a rectifier. So that little box on the cord of your laptop or your cell phone, that's actually a little rectifier, and it converts AC to DC out of the wall, sends it into your battery or into your device, and Bob's your uncle. So AC coupling is nice because actually it's a standard. I mean, every grid in the country is more or less 12240 or 12208 or 277480 or 12 kV or 33 kV. And so it's really nice that you have this like nationwide or grid that is on a standard voltage. So that's what makes AC really nice. Most of everything is AC coupled. DC coupling is just where you're connecting devices on the DC side before you're even hitting or looking at any AC grid or AC source whatsoever. So and the problem with DC coupling that I see now, I mean, DC coupling advantages are efficiency and lower cost, but the disadvantages is it's not very standard. 122.40 for residential and 208.480 for but CNI is yeah, very DC common. can be all but over DC, the map. Right. Exactly. I mean, there are, there are boats and RVs in these little fringe like niche markets where you get 24.48 volt DC standards, but that doesn't necessarily work. So the equipment that's out there now, yeah. like tell me, how does a DC coupled inverter, who's making a DC coupled inverter? So companies like DynaPower, mm-hmm. Ideal Power, there's on that, that's Edge. on the commercial and industrial side. Yep. And then you got Solar Edge, of course. Right. You had Tesla version one back in the day was doing DC coupled and then they pivoted. So yeah, they're out there. They're not as common, I would say, as AC coupled, but they're yeah. definitely out there. Yeah, I mean we're using a lot of Solar Edge. It just kind of works. You've got the four hundred volts coming down from the PV array and you've yep. got a battery that's running ostensibly at four hundred volts, even though it's really one fifty five under the hood. Yep. But the solar can directly charge the battery and that's kinda cool. And that is driving some of the standards I think that we're starting to see on the DC side, it's all thanks to solar. Solar being, you know, a 600 volt system day in and day out on the residential side and then 1,000 and now 1,500 and soon maybe 2,000. That All these things are really bringing some standard. The solar industry has done so much to bring this level of DC standardization that I think batteries can but really also, back But also, you mentioned driving. 
And so the cars, many of the car batteries are also set up at 400 volts. Right. So it's kind of right. cool that you've that's got right. solar that's operating at 400 volts. You've got the LG Chem or other batteries operating 400. You've got you know, your car operating at 400 volts. Okay, yep. but it can, now it gets more complicated. Let's break down some of these utility regulations for solar and storage. So first, California utilities, this is very frustrating to me. It took me a long time to figure it out. They categorize these battery storage systems in two buckets. One, they can charge from the grid and solar and other renewables. So it's kind of like coupled. And the second are systems that can only charge from solar. So you've got solar only or renewable only, and you've got systems that can charge from the grid and possibly solar. Now, obviously, we want to charge from solar instead of the grid. But what makes it really complicated is the requirements historically have been that for systems that charge only from solar, you need special metering, which for a residential system, the metering is going to cost more than the whole (laughs) solar and storage system. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you need special software and firmware, which is complicated. You know, unfortunately, we can't keep track of the individual electrons that might come from the sun versus what comes from the grid. You know, there's not green electrons and clean and green electrons, and there's not electrons that come from the grid that might be coated with carbon plaque. Who knows? But the confusing thing, since it's so illogical, all of the small DC-coupled residential systems that are installed in California are interconnected, assuming that they charge from the grid, even though they're never designed to do that. And it's kind of crazy. It took me a long time to figure out the paperwork. Why? Because there's no hard separate metering that these residential systems have. And the manufacturers haven't been able to certify their systems that use software or firmware to do this. So there's an exception that systems under 10 kilowatts can be interconnected even if they charge from the grid. And that's the bucket that SolarEdge and LG fits into. That's the bucket that the original Tesla Powerwall fit in. The new Tesla Powerwall is AC coupled, so it's hardwired, so it can never send battery power back from the grid. So the irony is, as contractors fill out the net metering forms and the SGIP forms, we have to check the box that says the systems can charge from the grid, even though we never do that. Now, the good news, and one of the highlights that Josh is just bringing to this, he's been working on this for a couple of years, is that the California Public Utilities Commission ruled in early 2019 that solar and storage systems can use software or firmware to confirm that the battery charges only from solar. Therefore, these systems can be net metered, so you have kind of like battery net metering. It's really, really cool. So that's like a huge innovation. Okay, so Josh, explain this new CPUC ruling in a little bit more detail. So the problem that we were trying to solve was how to put batteries, integrate batteries on a solar system such that we were able to get more energy to the customer that they really needed so that we were minimizing the power impact on the grid since we were running into lovely infrastructure upgrade costs and all kinds of lovely policy and requirements that the utility loves to impose. And we wanted to do this cost-effectively in the form of a DC-coupled sort of system. And so, essentially, the nuts, there were several nuts cracked to get this to work. One is you know, by DC coupling, it's a lower cost system, more efficient. That was nice. Why is DC coupling okay. cheaper and more efficient? Yeah. With an AC coupled system, if you imagine charging a battery from solar, the solar system has an inverter on it and the battery has an inverter on it and they are AC coupled. They are coupled on the AC side. So, so you have two inverters. And in order, exactly. And in order to charge the battery, if you imagine electron leaving the solar panel, rushing through its inverter, 
now it's got to go through the battery's inverter into the battery, and then when you're ready to use that electron, it comes out of the battery back through the inverter. It ends up making three passes through two different inverters. Very inefficient. Mm-hmm. DC coupled sidesteps all that because uh, you have one inverter for both devices. So the solar charges the battery directly, DC to DC. That's the key. So the solar yeah. is able to charge that battery directly yeah, with exactly. the battery management system in inside the battery, and, that, and that's right. what's great about Solar Edge and some of the, the commercial and industrial or C and I DC coupled systems. Okay. The other nut we wanted to crack was we wanted to offset demand reduction and offset energy use by using the solar at any time of day we wanted. I mean, that is the value of solar plus storage. It's not that complicated. Solar makes energy cheap. Batteries make it all the time. And what do customers want? Cheap energy all the time. So we're just putting these two technologies together to do that. And what we found was that almost 100% of the time, in order to fill the battery up to do something good for the customer later in the day or early the next morning or whatever, it needed to charge from solar and often at peak generation at a high noon when the solar is pumping out the most. And so what we saw was the battery was actually reducing the peak power of the solar generator because it was absorbing that extra energy for use later. So we were literally decapitating the duck curve. You know, all this stuff about duck curves and how solar is overgenerating in the middle of the day and there's this big steep ramp for the seven o'clock peak at night and how solar is making the problem worse. Well, we're making the problem better. So the peak of the duck curve, let's say it happens at one o'clock in the afternoon and that's where there's too much solar and yep. the utilities are screaming about that. Instead of sending the power back to the grid, just fill up every everybody's batteries. That's really elegant. Exactly. And then as you use longer duration storage, and especially on these larger CNI and utility scale projects, you start to see this really cool pattern where the solar is looking more and more like a standard generator. It turns on, it has a flat profile, and then it turns off. The solar, the solar with the battery. The solar with the battery. That's right. All right. Now, Next Tracker and Avalon are doing something kind of cool where you don't need an inverter that's as big on the solar if the excess power from the solar, which is, let's say it's putting out a megawatt of power, you only need a half a megawatt inverter if instead of sending the whole megawatt into an inverter and translate the AC, you can send half a megawatt into the inverter and the other half into the batteries. What's the implication of that? Well, a lot. So by charging the the batteries from the solar, you are absolutely right. You no longer need such a large inverter because you're never exporting at that peak power point anymore. You're exporting at a lower rating. So what we call in the design world the DC to AC ratio, which historically has always been somewhere between 1.05 and 1.25. That's the ratio between the inverter's AC nameplate rating and the solar panel's DC nameplate rating. So for you homeowners, you know, we'll put in 10,000 watts or 10 kilowatts of solar and we'll put a 7.6 kilowatt inverter on that and everything's fine. Exactly. Right. Then there's no reason to put a 10 kilowatt inverter on a 10 kilowatt solar system because you're basically buying a bunch of extra inverter you're hardly going to use because the the solar system... 99% of the time, it's never going to get close to 10 kilowatts. Right. So it's more cost effective to derate the inverter by like a factor of 1 to 1.25, 1.35, something like that. Well, what we're calling supersizing the solar system, we're looking at DC to AC ratios of over 2 because if the battery is sitting there and absorbing that extra power, you don't need as large of an inverter. So not only are we DC coupling the inverter, getting more efficiencies, fewer parts, and fewer inverters, but we're getting smaller inverters as well. And so the DC side, all the energy, all the fancy stuff happens on that side. On the AC side, all the utility now sees is a much lower, a much smaller, and a much longer duration solar plus storage system than they saw before. And they should want that. And that was part of the whole process of getting this policy through was, hey, customers need more than the one or the two megawatts that 
you're only allowing them to get by imposing all these rules. But actually, we're doing you a favor. We're reducing the power impact on the grid. So let's do this D-rated AC inverter, supersize the DC side, throw in a battery. Customers get all the energy they need. You get the lower power that you want. And in the meantime, contractors get to move more gear and sell more stuff and bring greater cost savings to customers. So did the utilities and the California Public Utilities Commission finally agree with that logic? Yes. And what was really funny was when we went in front of the CPC, because we worked collaborated with the utilities. You know, there's a lot of ways to engage these, you know, the bad guy, if you will, or the other side of the fence. And, you know, we really approached them like partners. Our approach was very consensus driven. We wanted to build something that made sense to both of us. We didn't want to do a force something down their throat. It was much more of a pull than a push. So we, we spent a lot of time with them. And when we went in front of the CPC, it was really funny. They said, okay, so industry, you put this together. Yes. Utilities, you worked together on this and you approve of this proposal. Yes. Ah, and the deputy commissioner actually pulled me aside after the hearing and said, you know, never in my whole career have I ever seen industry and utilities agree on something so as so controversial as NEM. Like, good job. You know, that that's you made my job really easy because if everybody agrees on everything, all we got to do is approve it. And it took them four more months to do that. Well, it finally got approved uh, beginning of 2019. That That's really yep. good. So what systems are able to meet this new requirement? Talk a little bit about the software and the firmware issue. Sure. I mean, this policy just got approved statewide January 31st. So to pilot the program and to get utilities on board and prove that this whole thing actually works, we demonstrated the concept with Avalon Battery Company and Ideal Power Inverters in the Next Tracker flow system. So the trick was to prove to the utilities that the battery will never, ever, ever charge from the grid. That was the rule that we were working under. And the way we demonstrated that was a tweak in the firmware, which if you have one inverter controlling both devices, really easy to do. It was literally a couple lines of code, took the engineers a day or two to actually do, and then have UL verify that and say, yep, those guys did it. So the utilities took UL's word for it, not ours. And with that, we demonstrated the system worked. We showed them graphs and lots of, you know, we tested it, stress tested it. Like, what if you have cloud cover? What if you ramp solar up and down really fast? Yeah, it's Does it's the code. Yeah, that's right. It's just, it's just like a one-way valve. So right. it's code version. So what other systems is this going to work for? And how would this apply to a residential system? I'd love to be able to apply interconnect that metering for a residential system and be correct about how the system's installed, which is it's never going to charge from the grid. The only, if you will, eligibility requirements for this new policy to work, all you need is a DC coupled inverter mm-hmm. and a manufacturer is willing to tweak his code. That's about it. That's you just okay. you just need any system, residential, commercial, doesn't matter. If you work with a manufacturer is willing to tweak their inverter software or firmware to meet these requirements and go through a short UL process, you are in the money. So that's basically on the inverter's side, and there's, I'm sure, manufacturers that are going to start working on this. I, you know, I believe some are already engaged. Let's talk a little bit more about the battery technology. So lithium-ion's been out there, and, and it works pretty well. They're ramping up the volumes much faster, and the costs are coming down, which is really, really great. Yeah. But there's other technologies like flow batteries. So what's holding back flow batteries? Is it just because they're new? It's just because people don't know what vanadium is? or What are the issues there? 
I think that's right. I mean, first of all, the policy does not discriminate against technology, so anybody can play. This is technology agnostic. But yeah, from the flow battery side, I would say it is, to our market, very new. Ironically, it's older than lithium. There are flow batteries that have been operating on the grid in a commercial application since the late 80s or early 90s, whereas lithium was a consumer product in those days and has only entered the stationary grid space as recently as maybe 2008 or 10, if you will. Mm. So, um, in a way, flow batteries are actually older, but to our customers and to our market, much newer because we haven't heard of it before. So the nice news there is there's a ton of data behind flow batteries. All right. How does the packaging for a flow battery work? Is it a big tank and then you just order the vanadium electrolyte and pour it in as opposed to a lithium ion battery, which may get delivered in a pallet or a container? Historically, flow batteries were big giant buildings and they were projects, not products. That was flow batteries' biggest hindrance. More recently, in the last seven years or so, flow battery companies have been miniaturizing their flow batteries so that they come off a conveyor belt in a production line instead of being assembled in the field. This gets it cheap. It gets it fast. I saw a flow battery, the ones that we like working with from Avalon, they got installed in 15 minutes, drop in place, plug and play. They ship wet with the electrolyte in them, so there's no filling of tanks at all. Not all flow batteries have done that. There's a trick many tricks to make that happen. So actually, Avalon has officially the very first flow battery in the world that has ever shipped wet. That is a very new thing. That's kind of cool. And, I've and, seen some videos like that recently. It yeah. was, you know, Avalon and Next Tracker thing. I think our friend Ralph was actually delivering That's it. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So flow batteries have overcome a lot of hurdles and they're very cost competitive with lithium now. Okay. All right. Well, fascinating. It's something that's going to take off. We're really at the leading edge here, but it is going in on a commercial industrial side and also definitely on the residential side. Well, tell us a little bit about how you started Seppi Solar and what got you interested in solar 15, 20 years ago. Well, after leaving Akina Solar, my my very first job out of college and where I got all my on-the-job training and everything I think I now know about solar started there, just started getting calls to do design engineering work. And I one of my cruxes or problems in life is I desperately like to help people. So, hi, I'm Josh Weiner. Well, I have a problem. And you're helping me because you're <laughs> teaching me about batteries, just like I yeah. tell you about solar. So and, that's good. And I've always had an education motivation. I, I love to, you know, somebody once told me who had actually lost his business a long time ago, he, you know, business comes and goes, companies come and go. But one thing nobody can take away from you is education. So I just love the the training process and working with customers, helping them solve problems, making them a little, hopefully a little smarter than they were before they met me, just helping people get from point A to point B. And it started with design plans and engineering. That was a need in the market that was desperately needed. And I wanted to fill it. Then it became permitting. Then it became processing interconnection applications and getting storage on the grid. And, and, and storage, and now it's batteries. How can right. people get in touch with Seppi Solar? You can contact us through our website at www.seppisolar.com or hello at seppisolar.com, or you can also call us at 510-940-9750. All right, terrific. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks, Josh, for joining us. Thanks uh, for having me. That's right, awesome. great. And then thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcast. 